Over the past four episodes of this season, we have happily seen a huge shift in our interaction with listeners. Because over the past month or so, there had been a bit of a lull in the activity in the followers of Faded Out group on Facebook, which was a sad thing to see because it had been so active during season one with the Johnny Gosh case. This lull was addressed within the group at the time, and Joe and Jess mentioned it when they guest hosted episodes 10 and 11, and the consensus was that it was because of something Joe and I had talked about in our last two episodes, that the Johnny Gosh case is very famous, and Doreen Vincent's case is not really known by anybody, even locally, at least until very recently. But the most amazing thing happened following Joe and Jessica's episodes, as well as with the next two episodes that Joe and I did, everyone wanted to talk about the Doreen Vincent case. Um, everyone wanted to learn more about her father, Mark Vincent. I was approving new members into that group every day, and I'm still getting new requests every day. And I do think that's very much to the credit of how we changed up the format a bit. Rather than just me as the person relaying the story, we tried to have more of a dialogue. It makes me think that maybe more of that kind of thing is required when you're working with a case that is so unknown. Um, it was always my goal in this podcast to engage the audience, receive tips, gauge ideas, hear new theories that I've never heard before. And again, because Doreen's case is such an unknown case, the involvement of the public becomes exponentially more important. Um, so for that reason, Jessica, Joe, and I have decided this week to take questions that we have received from listeners and address and discuss them to the best of our ability. So today I am joined by Joe Aguirre and Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and we are going to answer your questions and address your ideas and your concerns. This is season two, episode 14 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. In our last two episodes, Joe and I talked at length about Jimmy Farnham, the owner of the house at the time. And the interview that Jess conducted with him, it's, it's something that we've been listening to a lot because that's an interview that happened back in January. And we talked in our last episodes about how his answers stacked up against his ex-wife, Laura West's answers. Um, so before we get to the submitted questions, I'd like us to take a minute to address and discuss the concerns that some listeners raised regarding that. Let's talk about Jimmy Farnham a little bit. And I know that there have been a few listeners who didn't hear what we heard. Um, I think there was one and it was a guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's more than one person. You know, listen we've talked repeatedly on this show about the fact that we're we're not trying to speculate. We're not trying to guess. We're just following the clues as they come. And I remember after Jessica spoke to Jimmy Farnham, she's like, you got to hear this interview. It was weird. And in the first 20 seconds of the call, I was like, oh, my God, this is so weird. And she was like, oh, no, this ain't even the weird part yet. Mm -hmm. It only seemed to get weirder from there. And again, as you just said, you know, you put it up against what Laura West, his ex-wife, had to say, who he didn't acknowledge was his ex-wife when you talked to him, Jess. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the fact that he didn't bring up the fire in the driveway, mm -hmm. which would have been pretty huge. Um, on a house you rent, you pull up to the house and there's a giant burn mark in the driveway. Laura West certainly remembers asking, what the hell happened here? Jimmy Farnham didn't see fit to tell me about that event. Uh, we just found out from the permits that were pulled from the zoning department in Wallingford that Jimmy Farnham tore down the barn that was Mark's alibi in October of 88. These are big things occurring on the property where Doreen went missing. And the fact that he didn't see fit to talk to me about them is 
extremely disconcerting to me. Now, no one's saying the man's guilty of any kind of a crime. His behavior is bizarre. That's a bizarre thing to do. During an open, active investigation, you tore down the building structure on the property that Mark said was where he was at when Doreen went missing. I talked in the last episode about when, when you did talk to him, Jessica, about the work done on the property, he kept switching between I and we. Mm-hmm. And Laura West said she wasn't the we. She had nothing to do with any sort of work that was done. And she went so far as to say that Mark did do work on the property, which, again, this is somewhat speculation. But my assumption is, is when he's saying we, he's probably talking about the man who lived there. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been easy to go down rabbit holes in this case because there are so many. I mean, the three of us sit here and go down rabbit holes every day. Um, and then I ran at people about the rabbit holes I'm going down. And that's why I like the listener engagement because it says to me, we have these same concerns. We're hearing the same things. We've listened to that audio, like Sarah said, so many times. And I always hear something different. Um, I listened to it again this morning and I heard... Oh, you mean like like he was pouring concrete? It was a very specific mm-hmm. thing for him to bring up. And I just, you know, I know we're answering listener questions today, and I just want to make an announcement. Um, Skip Sieber, a long time ago on the Followers of Faded Out page, asked me if there was any chance of interviewing Paul Vincent. Um, and my response to him was, you know, Paul Vincent's been on our mind since the very beginning since he and Sarah were an unnamed two- and three-year-old in police reports. It wasn't until we got to Donna's house and she had a list of questions to ask us, um, one of the foremost of which was, have you talked to Paul and Sarah? And that was the first time that we figured out their names. Um, We are in contact with Paul Vincent. Mm -hmm. Um, We've talked to him pretty extensively, and we're trying to build trust with him. I hope that he talks to us some more. Um, I'm not, um, able to say what we talked about. And I think that's, you know, listeners of the show should appreciate why, but you know, Paul Vincent this morning, I said to him, we're doing a listener question show. Do you have any questions? And he wrote this. Good morning. Something I've really been wondering is how the owner of the house, when we were there, knew of a niche place like teen challenge, but forgot my dad's name and somehow still knew of a connection between them. Have you tried to get another interview with him? So much to unpack in that question. Because I want people to realize, too, that you spoke to Jimmy Farnham um, the day after we premiered this season. So it was the day after the first episode came out. Um, So the time between when you spoke to Jimmy Farnham and we actually played his voice on the podcast for the first time, um, over a month had gone by. Mm -hmm. And you had made more attempts to get in touch with him before he was ever heard on the podcast. Um, Debbie, I just spoke to Debbie, to Dorian's aunt, and she said to me, well, he's probably not speaking to you because he's pissed at you guys because you used his words against him you know, um, he's probably angry. And I said, okay, I looked up the recording. I spoke to him on January 28th. Yep. He was extremely curious about the name of the podcast, what we were doing. He made a serial joke. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, uh, where are you broadcasting from? Where are you broadcasting from? He asked me about three times. He never asked to help. At his request, I did send him the podcast and I sent him the articles um, from the interviews you did, Sarah, with mm-hmm. Lauren Tacoris. I have never heard back from Jimmy Farnham. Not once. So he isn't mad at us because of what we did with his words because he stopped taking our calls long before that. And, and, you know, right after I listened to that phone call for the first time, I pointed out to you, I was like, oh, you can literally hear him searching around for something so he could take notes. Mm -hmm. And if you listen to the call, you can hear him taking notes and then asking you to repeat things so he could write them down. Yeah, there are a couple of times where he is clearly distracted and I ask a question and he says... Oh, what what did you say? And you can hear a pen scratching. So to yeah, me, this isn't speculation. This is fact. You no, can this is hear real. It. 
You can hear it. And again, you know, I want to say to anybody that thinks that we're going down rabbit holes, you know, millions of millions, I wish thousands of people have listened to the podcast, you know, since the, the latest Jimmy Farnham audio was released and people are freaked. You know, when I did that interview, it was very early and I was just gathering information. It'd been about a month. Um, when he said Lydia from Beetlejuice, she's really spooky. It, no, yeah. it just didn't sit right with me. Nothing about that interview sat right with me at all. And and again, I've listened to that 20 times. I've probably listened all the way through to that phone call. And it is. Then there's been some weird ones. And I've spoken to Mark Vincent. I still mm-hmm. think Jimmy Farnham said the most bizarre and, and weirdly curious things that makes me wonder if this guy's hiding something and and again i'm not i'm not suggesting he's done anything but he was just weird but if you haven't done anything you know i'm sorry i maligned your reputation but give me a call and tell me why i'm wrong yeah well that's i think a lot of the people who are not calling us back what would be the reason because this podcast isn't going away so i mean we're going to keep putting out episodes each week so Ignoring it is not going to make it go away. If you're, if you've got nothing to hide, the best thing you can do is try and help. Yeah, clear your name. Yeah. Mark's boss, Frank IML from Frank's Paints, who apparently is retired now. Not only did he take Jess's call, like 30 minutes later, some other things occurred to him and he called back. And you know what he said to me when he called back? And I just, I, I really want to stress this. He said to me, he gave me the information he had remembered. And he said, I really didn't want to call you back. I don't like Mark Vincent. I don't want to have anything to do with Mark Vincent. I haven't in 30 years. The fact that his daughter disappeared is extremely sad. And I'm sad that I have any connection to this case whatsoever. But I thought, this woman needs my information. I'm going to call her up. And, you know, Frank has a tenuous relationship with Mark. He was his boss. You know, Mark stole his car, I guess, which is a big thing. But, you know, he called me back. I'd like to point out, too, that, and the listeners don't know this. You do. I do. Jess does. There's a lot of people who are speaking off the record. Yeah. Who we've spoken to five, ten times. Who just keep calling back with more information. Right. People who were around, people who know Mark now. We're mm-hmm. hearing from all sorts of people. Some people don't want to be on the podcast. Jimmy Fordham said, yeah. Sure. Throw mm-hmm. me on the podcast. But I'll just be less guarded when I'm speaking. I'll be less guarded. Another truly bizarre. Even more Mark guarded. Vincent <laughs> didn't say I'll be more guarded. Right. Yeah, That's a weird thing to say. There's a woman in Wallingford who I called in the very beginning. Because as you'll remember... Um, The property was owned by Jimmy, sold to him privately by his father. Jimmy sold it to Laura privately, didn't care to mention Laura West is my wife. Um, Laura sold it privately to the Fergusons who live there now. Uh, He didn't say anything to me. Lovely people. No, they're not. He didn't say anything to me about, um, you know, Laura being his wife or the Fergusons being a friend of the uh, Charleses, of his sister and brother-in-law. Uh, Laura West also told me that, you know, uh, the Fergusons and the Charleses had a fight um, in recent years and they don't speak to each other anymore, which is weird because they they share adjoining properties. You know, none of the he was more interested in making jokes about Beetlejuice. Are you going to find something in the walls? Yeah. Where are you broadcasting from? He asked me that about three right. times. Are you trying thought, to be like cereal? As the, yeah. another question he asked. I said, yeah, I'd love to be like cereal. I mean, let's crack this. Um. 175 million downloads, by the way, for Serial. So it's true. We'd love to. We would love that. <laughs> we'd like to be we mentioned actually, in that company. We would actually love to be mentioned in the same sentence. <laughs> <as that. laughs> you know, one more thing I do want to mention, because, again, we talk about listening to this audio over and over and finding things in it. And we haven't listened to it 20 times, Joe. We've listened to it about 50 times. For, for Jimmy Farnham to pull Teen Challenge out like that out of nowhere... Uh, my sister's a physician's assistant, or was, at Yale New Haven in um, New Haven. She worked there for about seven years, I want to say. Uh, she called me up as soon as she listened to the audio, and she said, where'd that Teen Challenge thing come from? I worked in downtown New Haven. I never heard of it. We used to refer kids to drug addiction treatment programs. Um, we have never heard that name our whole career. I said, well, Alyssa, maybe you don't 
you only know the reputable ones. And she said, no, we know the disreputable ones too because we don't refer people there. We know reputable, we know disreputable. We don't know Teen Challenge. I did a quick Google search. I invite the listeners to do it. Look up drug addiction services in New Haven. It's a vast sea of resources. Teen Challenge is not on the top of that. I also want to point out um, one more thing. I'm so sorry as I listen to this audio. Jimmy Farnham in the beginning of that conversation said, we heard that Mark Vincent went back to his old ways of drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first time yeah. that I heard said that. he was a drug specific- dealer. Yeah. Yeah. And I haven't heard it since. The only drug addiction fact that I've seen is the fact that he lives and works with Teen Challenge. Um, Debbie says that Mark is not and has never been an addict. Teresa says Mark is not and has never been an addict. So people are wondering why he's at a place for addicts when people think that's bullshit. Well, he is in a place where he can use his best ability, and that is to manipulate people who are vulnerable. And you could not find more vulnerable people than the clientele at Teen Challenge. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised by that at all. Getting back to Jimmy Farnham and his knowledge of Teen Challenge, I think we've all deduced here that we think Jimmy and Mark had a closer relationship than just landlord and tenant. And might still, because if you look up Jimmy Farnham, and you do have to do some digging. I'm sorry, I don't have the papers right in front of me, but, you know, Jimmy Farnham does grant work. He supplies resources for places like this. And I have in documents, I mean, it doesn't say Jimmy Farnham plus Teen Challenge, but I'm finding their names linked together in documents. And so he works in prison reentry and drug addiction services in New Haven in the same industry. That's a really weird thing. If you knew somebody who was living on your property, whose daughter went missing and then vanished off the face of the earth, what are the chances that you wouldn't remember that person? I mean, honestly, exactly. what, what are the chances that the person that burned you for a lot of rent money brought, um, you know, maybe, maybe kind of cost you a little reputation wise for burned your for, driveway. Sure. Uh, did a lot of damage in the house too. Uh, I, I, you know, Mark's not somebody I think you would have forgotten. Not to mention, while he's still living there, you go onto the property and tear down that barn. Yeah, one month before Mark disappears. And don't forget, if you forget Mark, maybe you forget Doreen too. But um, you know, the longest she was there was from the fifth to the fifteenth. Um, Laura says that they did see Sharon and Mark and the children once when uh, Mark and Sharon came to look at the house before it was rented. So that's one time, maybe two from the 5th to the 15th. But, you know, she was always dressed in black. You know, the very specific details about Doreen being obstinate and a disciplinary problem. Those are very specific memories that don't ring true. Well, sure, you would also have to have spent time with a person correct to know that and meeting them once to show them the house and maybe a second time to literally hand them the keys i don't know that you'd be able to make that analysis and then remember it 31 years later and not remember the dad and name. right not remember the dad that you work alongside maybe in New but Haven. remembered six hundred dollars six hundred dollars a month he Came right, came right at you. Has a dollar yeah. figure in his head. Weird. I don't remember, Just, Joe, I don't remember what our rent was a decade ago. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I have no idea. I do, but I <laughs> have <right>. that kind <laughs> of memory. We put out an announcement in the group, followers of Faded Out, that we were going to take questions this week. Um, so I want to start with the first question, and it's kind of going off of what we just started to talk about. Do you think it's possible she went missing before the move? And then the follow-up question was, did anyone see her at the new house? Um, The move, of course, being the move from Bridgeport to 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road, Wallingford. We do know she was seen at the house, and we've heard it from enough credible sources. Including Laura West. To believe that, yeah, including Laura West, Jimmy Piscotti, um, the neighbor 
is a big part of the reason why we believe that uh, June 15th isn't the date that June 12th is, is probably more likely the date. Correct. And we are going to get to that too. We, we, we certainly will. Cause, well, cause yeah. there's a lot to unwrap. Well, there. let's just, I mean, I think those two questions. So, um, you think it's okay to say names? I think, you know, yeah. All right. So Jennifer Kuhn said, do you think it's possible she went missing before the move? And Lauren Fuentes Pilata said, did anyone ever see her at the new house? So right. we tackled the first one. And then... And, and that is my next question that I have in my notes. Uh, the next question was, where does the June 12th date that we keep repeating yep, come from? A couple people asked that. What makes you think something happened to her days before her father claimed she ran away? So first of all, everyone he has to admit, it's weird that he would have waited three days. Yes. That is uh, alarm bells sounding off. So... We've always approached it June 15th, the police, the, the newspapers, everybody always said June 15th. We went and talked to Jimmy Piscotti, and we all agree he's a, a really fine fella, mm -hmm. not, not a favorite of the Wallingford police who, I guess, think he's a bit of a gossip. Well, he's lived there for a long time. He he's sure a has. plumber mm -hmm. in the local area. Knows and everyone, his, yeah. his, um, his house is kitty corner to the property and it's right next to the uh, i would say new but it's not new anymore Gouveia vineyards correct um so jimmy said that he heard a commotion and the first time i it was it was in one of the articles uh i think yes. uh fliss had spoken to him a couple weeks after the incident and he he described some some commotion some screaming at the house or whatever uh, said it sounded like a parent disciplining a child and nobody ever followed up with Jimmy Piscotti ever again, literally until we showed up. Yep. And I asked Jimmy about that and, uh, you know, Jess, you had pulled the warrants and in the arrest warrant, Mark explained the day Doreen went missing and he said it was Wednesday, June 15th. And a lot of what occurred that day doesn't jive because Mark had a job. Well, let's go through this really quickly. And to I, I want everybody to take, get yourself a copy of the Sharon statement, get yourself a copy of the warrant, put them together. June 15th, all these things were supposed to have happened according to those two people. Sharon says Mark came home from work, which... All of the women in Doreen's family have said he's never had a consistent job. So coming home from work is, I mean, I don't know what that means. Maybe Mark can tell us. Came home from work at 4.30. She had dinner ready on the table. At 6 o'clock or 6.15, they're sitting down to eat, you know, as you usually do. An I hour. guess they wanted the food to cool down. Yeah. So Doreen, Sharon, Mark, Paul, and Sarah all sit down to eat. And it's at that point that Sharon is off to church. For five hours. Okay. After Sharon leaves, Mark's in the workshop, which I'm going to call Alibi Barn, from eight to nine. And that's when Doreen goes missing. Ask yourself this question. Let's start with this. Where are Paul and Sarah during this? No, no mention Never of them for. in any of the police reports. They're two and three years old. Sharon goes to church. She did not take the children. Mark goes, leaves Doreen in the house. Now, it's hard for us to know where exactly the barn was located at the time, given that it's been torn down. But it's my sense that you wouldn't leave a two and three year old child at night in a house that you just moved into and go fiddle around in your workshop. Right. I wouldn't. OK, nope. so that's Sharon's statement. The four thirty, the six o'clock, the six fifteen, you know, then Mark says the eight and the nine. But also remember this Mark's own words have him getting into an argument with Doreen on June 15th and he's pushing her into a window breaking it and his own words literally have him paddling Doreen so hard that she's screaming in the afternoon and Sharon has to take Paul and Sarah out of the house so if you take all of those things as true it, you can't make the puzzle pieces fit together someone's mm -hmm lying it sounds like they're conflating at least two, two days. days you have literally placed mark in two different places at once and that is why june 15th of that year doesn't jive with us and a lot of it also has to do with the days of the week um because june 15th 1988 was a wednesday for that reason we talked about maybe something happened before that and they chose specifically 
Wednesday, June 15th as their alibi day. Because I said this in the very first episode of this season, um, it is not uncommon for some churches to have Wednesday night services. So maybe that was a story, the part of a story that was that was crafted. Yes, and so um, I don't remember when I did speak to Jimmy Piscotti, but when I did, he's a very affable guy. Um, I asked him to tell me about this commotion that he hears. That comes from the 2001 article that we dug up. Um, he says, oh, yeah, I remember. Um, I heard a commotion. There was a lot of yelling. It sounded like a parent disciplining a child. So, okay, maybe there were a couple instances between June 5th and June 15th of a parent loudly disciplining a child in two homes that are kitty corner to each other. Okay, fine. But no other evidence of that. Okay. Because, because Mark talks about that one instance and Jimmy Piscotti hears something quite similar. And I'm going to go ahead and say that the pushing into a window and the screaming and paddling incident, I don't think that those were two incidents. And I don't think that there was a third incident where Doreen either disappeared or lost her life. It's all one ball of wax. So now specifically to get to the actual, what we're talking about, how, why we think the date is wrong. And, and you'll probably recall this, Sarah, you and I were talking and I looked at you and I said, why do we think it was the 15th? We think it was the 15th because that's what Mark Vincent said. Mark Vincent is not what I would call an honest person. I've never met anybody who feels that way about Mark. Mm-hmm. So I thought to myself, man, we're, we're basing all of the police are basing all of this on the 15th. I asked Jimmy Piscotti a Wednesday night. Would, 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 would that have, that's when, when this supposedly went down. And and Jimmy said no. I, no, I that's wouldn't be not home. What happened? I wouldn't be home. Yeah. No, Joe, give me some credit. I got on the phone with Jimmy Piscotti. He's telling me he hears this racket. He hears the screaming. He hears the yelling. And I didn't. You know what? Here's what we don't do with witnesses, which I think you know a couple people have wanted to say we do. It's not true. I didn't say Jimmy Wednesday Sunday. What do you think? Tell me. I said put me where you are. Mm-hmm. Where are you when you hear this? He says I'm. I just mowed the lawn. I'm in my yard. I'm on my stone wall weeding it. Um, that's where the raspberry bushes were going to come in. And I said, okay, um, what day would this have been? And he said, well, it would definitely have been on a weekend because I don't do yard work during the week. I mow the lawn and I tend to the wall and all the other things I do on the weekend. So now if Jimmy Piscotti is hearing a commotion at 1316, he's hearing it on Saturday, June 11th, or Sunday, June 12th. And I think that's why, and we've talked about this, um, whatever went down on that weekend, I think they chose Wednesday, June 15th as that day because that takes Sharon out of the house. Yes. So she can't, she can't um, give any insight as to where she saw Doreen go. Right. And if you're on June 15th and Sharon's out of the house, you know, you can call Mark whatever kind of father you want. There's a two and three-year-old in the house. Somebody has to be tending to them. Well, and not for nothing, but Sharon does find a way to blow it because she would the later lock. tell the cops that Doreen couldn't have left because of the lock. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I agree with you. I think the idea was to keep her out of it as much as possible. And again, it explains why the kids aren't accounted for. We have not been able to verify which church or any witnesses that saw Sharon at church. And and I'll throw that out there. If anybody was at that church in West Haven, June 15th of 1988, if you were sitting near or with Sharon, let us know. Glenn Alkire tells me it was probably before, you know, he screamed at me and hung up on me. But he did say the words Ebenezer Chapel in West Haven. So if that rings any bells for anybody, let us know. You can let us know anonymously. A lot of people talk to us anonymously. I said that earlier. We've certainly talked to a ton of people off the record. A lot of this investigation is based off of people we've spoken to off the record. I I, I could tell you there's even another person who confirms a lot of what we're talking about right now who's off the records. Trust me when I tell you this person's confirmed for me personally that it's probably June 12th that we're looking at as the date. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Hopefully somewhere down the line we could give you more information on that, but take it on good authority for right now. And I think, too, a lot of this has been lost to the sands of time, as is the case here 
a lot of the a lot of the time. Um, Donna and Carol and Debbie have insisted from the beginning that Saturday, June 18th was not the day that they were going to pick her up, that it was a different day. I believe they wanted to pick her up on, I, I, I have they to get these details Wednesday, down. They said Wednesday, June 15th. They were supposed to pick her up earlier. Yes. And yes. then and then it was going to be Friday the 17th turned into Saturday the 18th. Yep, and because- of course, Mark and Sharon, by taking the phone off the wall, certainly made it more difficult for that pickup to happen, which is weird because Doreen was already missing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. How do you explain that? You know, Joe, you and I have gone over this so many times, but, you know, there has to come a point, you know, like you said, Donna's coming. You got to have some sort of excuse because Mm -hmm. Donna, you might have delayed her a while. And, you know, I don't know if the listeners know this. I think, Sarah, you might have touched on this. You know, the next question coming up is when was the last confirmed sighting of her? Um, When was the last time Donna saw her? Donna's not really sure because Mark had been delaying visitation. Before they moved. And I don't know if anybody knows this either. He went so far as to make Donna think Donna was suggesting that they push off the visitation schedule because Mark was getting ready to move. Yeah. So they knew Mark was moving. Debbie, Carol, and Donna. They didn't know when and they didn't know where. And and not only did they not know where, but Bridgeport to Wallingford is kind of a jump. I don't know yep. if Sharon worked. I don't know if she was employed anywhere, but Mark's a carpenter. All his connections are in Bridgeport, and then he goes to Wallingford randomly? That's weird. Out in the middle of nowhere in Wallingford, not even in that beautiful, bustling downtown area. Mm-hmm. Which would make more sense, because that's where you'd get business. No, but that house is beautiful, but you go up there now, and it, it sees traffic because of Gouveia. But before Gouveia, I mean, it's it's desolate and isolated now. Yeah. Why are you moving to a house in the middle of nowhere? Well, it's also seeing traffic because of faded out. And I, I would <laughs> I would ask people, stop driving by Dial the it house. Back. Because Dial it back, he, they are noticing it and it's not cool. So let's get on to the next question. When was the last 100% confirmed sighting of Doreen? It's a tough one. That is a tough one because we cannot tell you the exact date Um because, as we just talked about, um, the last visitation that Doreen was supposed to have with her mother, Donna, they missed that one. Um, and Donna has been forthcoming and telling us, I don't know th- what the date was the last time I saw her. What a horribly tragic thing, to because, you know, when you lose somebody, and I mean, we've all lost somebody in our lives it's that last moment that you Mm -hmm. want to try to get back, you know, especially if it's an older person, you know, they're getting ready to pass. You, you, you'll always remember that last chance you had to talk to them. You know, maybe there was some beef or whatever the case may be. You you, you get that closure, that peace of mind. And, and this is a big, this is why I feel so bad for Donna is, is that was stolen from her. Mm -hmm. Like she, she can't place it. She doesn't remember because she didn't anticipate that being the last time she would ever see her daughter. Well, and what it makes me think of, too, um, I remember one time we were with Donna and she mentioned calling the house, uh, trying to get directions to the house. It was the day that she called and was able to talk to Sharon and get the directions. Um, she asked to speak to Doreen and Sharon very calmly said, um, oh, Doreen's not here. Um, and Donna thinks nothing of it. She just thinks, oh, Doreen's at the store. Uh, she'll be back in 10 minutes. Something that like that. In that beautiful yard outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just, oh, she's just not, she's just not in the door yet. And it's so disturbing when you think that that is, that is what her mother was told and was, and was thinking like, oh, my, my daughter's safe. She's, mm-hmm. she's fine. That's probably um, her last memory thinking her daughter was still alive. Mm-hmm. And that's horribly tragic. Well, let me compound that as well. When I talked to, you know, the third police officer that was put on the case, who's no longer on the case because he's been promoted, I sent him a list of, because they can't just open up the file and talk to me about it. So I said, can I, they can't give me their thoughts. They can't look stuff. I said, can I give you a list of objective yes or no questions or questions with specific answers Go back and dig through the file. It took about three weeks or a month for them to get back to me. Okay, fine. Um, you know, I know they have other stuff to do. 
But uh, one of my questions was, why did Sharon ever tell Donna that Doreen wasn't there? Or did she ever mention that again in any of her statements? And Sharon did. Sharon said, I didn't tell Donna that Doreen was missing because Donna never specifically asked that question. And my voice cracks a little bit there because who, what parent asked that question? Why would you? Why would you ever even think to ask that? You just and assume your kid's safe with, yeah. with dad and stepmom. Why mm-hmm. wouldn't she be? Hey, is my daughter by any chance missing for you know, three days? I, I've had people days? ask that question, and, it, and if, I apologize if I'm jumping the gun. I've had people ask, why was that girl even with Mark? And mm-hmm. they knew the kind of person Mark was. And Mark, again, by all accounts, was a good father, though. To the point where nobody ever would have thought that that kid would be unsafe Mm -hmm. with her father. And Sharon's in the picture. And Sharon's a loving mother of two little kids. And Donna liked Sharon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Donna liked Sharon a lot. So why would they ever suspect something would happen? But it did. Yeah. And that's the important thing that people should understand. I think, too, you know, Donna struggles with a lot of guilt. I think, you know, a lot of people too, a lot of people have asked me, how could that mother ever let her go with that man? And, you know, I've heard from them multiple times that there was never, you know, a a worry that Mark would do something to his own daughter. Um, By all accounts, they had a very close, loving, you know, normal relationship. Um, And, you know, I think it's unfair to put that on Donna. Donna was also extremely young at the time. You know, I think she was 28 with a 12-year-old. She had Stephanie, who was five. And in in Donna's mind, you know, Mark had a settled life with a wife. They had a house. They had two other kids. It's better for Doreen to be with him. And she had visitation. It's not like they didn't see each other. Well, don't forget, that was also the 15th year that Mark had been manipulating Donna and her family. Well, true. So that he had- they, were, they were pretty much programmed to go along with whatever Mark said. Yeah, and well, and it's like you just said too. Um, he had a much more stable-looking life from just from the outside looking in. It looked like he had all of his stuff together, and as they all said too, it seemed that he was very doting on her. Very, and I think in hindsight, she sort of realized that, like that first day that we met her, met Donna at her house. She said, "I think he was obsessed with her." And she even said it then. She says, I realize that now. And she says, but you're stupid in your 20s. And I think, um, you know, and I think she, like you just said, she feels a lot of guilt. But and people ask that question a lot. But I think nobody knows that better than Donna does. I've told Donna and Debbie and and I think I even talked to Joe Murat about it. That's their Doreen's uncle. Doreen's uh, because they all they all suffer from guilt over this. And and I say to them, you know, you you guys were the victims here. Mm -hmm. You guys were the victims for a long time by this guy. And when he finished with you guys, he moved right on through a whole bunch of other people. Yeah. So there's certainly regrets and you wish you could have done things differently. But, you know, I, I, I stress to them. You didn't. You didn't know, and and you and you. You know, look. The mistake was that you trusted somebody who you thought you could trust. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That that doesn't. You're the victim. You're not the fool in that situation. And and I think that's important for for everybody to to mm-hmm. to keep in mind when it comes to this story. Mark lived in their home for a while. Yeah, that's how much they trusted this guy. They like let him right into their world, and he took complete advantage. You know, Sarah, one of the things that I really took away from season one is when you did the interview with John Gosh, and I think you asked him a question about guilt. And I know that there are some people that think John Gosh had something to do with the abduction of his son and others who don't. No matter where you stand on that, if you believe that he's innocent, you said to him, do you struggle with guilt because you weren't a perfect parent maybe? Or, Or no, you said, do you struggle with guilt because you didn't take him out on his... Well, I asked him about some... I I, I asked him about the days that Johnny um, went by himself and versus uh, the days that he went with him. And he recalled to me the night before Johnny had asked him if he could go on by himself because they were going to go to the lake later that day. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it, 
you know, it's been even longer for him. But And John Gosh said something that just really stuck with me. You said, you know, do you feel guilt about that? And he said, no, people aren't supposed to take your children. Oh, yeah. And that's my point here. This is this is the dad. If there's one place you're supposed to be safe, it's with your dad. And, yeah. and, and if you're a divorced mom, you should always feel that way. And... Again, they knew what a jerk Mark could be and what a manipulator, but that's ah, your blood. That's your blood right there. Right. Come on. Right. You would never. And then he did. Another question from our listener, Frank. Any chance Joe could interview Mark on the podcast? And we've certainly been trying to make that happen. Um, I know Mark is not a fan of mine. And I'm not a fan of his. And we, you were there, Sarah, for the first six minute conversation. Uh, there's been, there's been some text messages. The The last couple were, were not very nice. Mark and I, uh, I believe lobbed insults at each other. I've said it repeatedly. I'll say it again. Mark Vincent, you can come on this podcast and you can do what you do and you can explain everything away. If you'd like the floor still open to you. I've been telling you that since before Christmas. I mm-hmm. will let you know who Mark is speaking to. He's definitely talking to Debbie Pereira. He's got a lot of stuff to say to Debbie Pereira, and he's got a lot of stuff to say to Teresa Lyon. Um, a lot of it is excuses. One thing that uh, caught my attention, he's mad that we said on this podcast that he once shot a gun at Donna. He's mad that Donna told us that he shot a gun at Donna. I guess what we didn't say, and... Donna didn't tell us this detail was, I guess he was trying to rustle one of her boyfriends out of the house. Doesn't deny the gun thing. Doesn't deny shooting it. He's mad that we reported it and she told us. Sorry to report the facts. Yeah. He's also mad at me because I mentioned that Teresa has a gun and a knife. And I said, I bought pepper spray. Everybody should protect themselves. He's really angry that I would cast aspersions on his character and maybe (laughs) question my own Mm -hmm. safety, which, you know, this is not always a comfortable thing to do when you're talking about someone who lives in New Haven and is a career criminal and is walking around. Sorry that I got some pepper spray. You know, if if I don't have any reason to use it, why are you angry at me for having it? Well, it's a bunch of bizarre things to be upset about when, in fact, you could be sitting on the fourth mic in the studio today helping us figure out where Doreen is or what happened to Doreen. That's the most pressing thing. And I think that it's so obvious that we don't even notice it anymore. If he's innocent, why has he never tried to find her? I talked to Debbie Pereira coming over here in the car and I said, do you have a question? And her question is, If you're innocent, why aren't you helping? And why don't you take a lie detector test? I should point out that he's never said the words, I'm innocent. He said, he says a lot of very specific thing, guys. And I want you to listen to If you're looking at me, you'll never find her. I am not a murderer. I mean, an accidental Sure, right. There's loopholes in the things that he says. So again, come speak on the record. Clear yourself. And let's go together and let's find out who really did it then. He it's says, as simple as that. Otherwise, mm-hmm. he's O.J. Simpson on the golf course courses of Florida looking for Nicole's killer. What about yep. this That's one. what he ultimately is being right now. Mm-hmm. Do you want to help? Help. If you don't, stop whining about it and let us have it. He yeah. says this all the time. If somebody finds her, it's not going to be the podcast. The podcast can't help. Remember, Joey said to you, yes, you can't help. Well, why not? Yeah, he said, he said, I know you want to help, but you can't. And it was those last three words that are just so cutting. So definitive in in saying it too. Like, I'm sure you'd like to, but you can't. But why can't we Because, well, he knows the reason. He knows what the reason is. And I mentioned this off the top. I literally said... I think there might be other people involved. Would you tell me about if you think anyone else is involved? And he wouldn't even touch that. Yeah, you specifically use the names Jimmy Farnham, Glenn Elkire. You told him that things are tense up on Whirlwind Hill, and they have been for a while. You know what? The Fergusons and the Charles's relationship 
maybe it has absolutely nothing to do with Doreen. You know, not everything. And I have to go through this in my mind all the time. Not everything is suspicious. Not everything is related to Doreen. Not everything points to a crime. But it's weird that the two people that live on adjoining properties privately sold are warring with each other. Sure, you put it in the context of the whole thing, though, and then, yeah, it does become weird or just a lot of coincidence. Can we? Talk- and Albert Einstein didn't believe in coincidence. Mm-hmm. He said things that seem like they are, are. This might be a good time to talk about people who, you know, might be completely innocent but might not act like it. Like, um, yeah. you know, Debbie and I, um, I want to say it was the beginning of March, uh, Debbie called me up and she said, I want to take a ride by 1316. I haven't seen it in about 30 years. I want to see what it looked like. She was very focused on looking at the patio. What does that look like? Where was it? She wants a memory refresher. She wants, okay. We drive up there. It's pouring rain. Very difficult to see. As we've said numerous times, no shoulder, no sidewalk. So we kind of pull over. And all of a sudden... There's the Fergusons coming out of the house. Now, the Fergusons to us are a bit of a mystery. Um, We tried to call them and email them and Facebook message them in the beginning. Um, No response, and they blocked me. Okay, that's fine. Um, You know, I think the, the common assumption is you want to protect and enjoy your property, and it's not fair that podcasters are coming on to talk about it with you. I am recalling when you went to Iowa and you knocked on Johnny Gosh's old door. Mm-hmm. What'd they say? Well, the lady answered the door and her demeanor, she was very nice. Like she, stranger comes and rings the doorbell. She came out. She was very interested in whatever I was about to ask. Um, I said, well, this is going to sound a little weird, um, but I do a podcast and it's about Johnny Gosh. And the moment I said his name, she just said, no, no. No, and she just turned and closed the door behind her. Figure this is just somebody who, after John Gosh Sr. sold the house 10 years after Johnny disappeared, this is just somebody who bought the house afterward. And what it wasn't a, a private sale, as far as I know. It wasn't like everybody knew everybody. It was just it was just a house sale. She probably gets a lot of people over the years. I don't know how long she's lived there, but over the years, probably a lot of... Um, looky-loos and yeah, such. gawkers, right? Yeah. yeah. As far as I knew when we started this podcast, the Fergusons had no idea that something happened because, again, if, if, if there's not a... I think you have to report murders in a property that you're selling, right? Again, remember, private sale, and there's no actual evidence or, you know, indication of any actual murder having happened in the house. Um, we pulled in, and I said to Debbie, what do you think? Should we talk to him? She said... Yeah, maybe. And, you know, I think it's dangerous having Debbie and I in a car together because we kind of, you know, I've said shit stir on this podcast before. She and I pulled into the driveway. We got out. And the minute that I started speaking and said, I'm with the podcast. This is Doreen's Aunt Debbie. I mean, Joe, I have it on tape. What'd you hear? I remember when she called me right afterwards and told me that, Mr. Ferguson about lost his mind, and I thought to myself, well, it's Sunday, the guy's heading out with his wife, he didn't want Shauna's property, I get it. Then I listened to the audio, and I thought, that guy's insane. Yeah. I, I could not believe the reaction, it was way over the top. Well, you know what was odd about it? It was the first thing that he said, he seemed calm. At first, within the first second, he was like, no, please get off my property. And then sort of unprompted, unprompted, Mm -hmm. within a second, he exploded. And he was like, he was yelling things like, call my lawyer. Yeah, if you want to talk to me, you're going to have to talk to my lawyer first. Again, not saying that the Fergusons have anything at all to do with Doreen, but what the hell does that mean? Well, the other thing Why would you say that? Mm -hmm. When he... I said to Debbie the other night, when I can't even remember what his face looked like because he morphed so quickly. I just see anger, and he was lashing, and he was coming at my car. And I immediately, as soon... You can hear me on the tape, I mean, which I think we should play on the podcast. I said, no, no, okay, never mind, thank you, bye. And I went into fight or flight, and I just kind of went back in my car. Debbie was not having it. 
You know, Debbie's waited 30, almost 31 years. This was her chance. And she's a small woman. And she stood there very calmly. And she said, you know, I'm sorry to bother you today. I, I know I see you're just going out. Um, I'm Dorian's aunt. And I mean, screaming, you know, as even as Debbie's getting into my car, he's rushing my car as I'm trying to pull out of the driveway. It was just it was over the top. And I'm glad you agree, Joe, because, again, it's easy to go down these rabbit holes where everything looks weird. But it was weird. It was definitely weird. Doesn't mean that they did anything. Doesn't mean they know anything. In the context of a little girl went missing on that property 30 years ago when you now own it, your reaction was unreasonable. And I I, I, I mean, again, I, I truly went into listening to the recording thinking... My wife can be kind of a pain. I get it. <laughs> I could be kind of hyperbolic. I get it. Um, this was this was mind blowing to to see a reaction like this, it, it, especially especially the fact that it's two small women and one of them's mm-hmm. the aunt of the girl that went missing. And it was more, have some empathy, man. Mm-hmm. It was more, you know, he when you hear the change in. The recording, Sarah, when you said he went from calm to like losing his ever loving mind when he said, get off my property, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that was when I mean, look, I'm not a professional investigator. I don't have the power of the badge behind me. I have no idea what Bob Ferguson, I think that's his name, is, you know, capable of. I'm not saying he's dangerous, but I just thought to myself, OK, yeah, all right, good. We've I'm going to get back in my car. Everybody the benefit of the doubt. And we've assumed everybody we've spoken to is going to be honest and would would be, you know, again, and this has been, I've made this joke a few times, uh, every single person we call answers on like the first ring. I don't mm-hmm. understand why people are even answering their cell phone. I never answer mine. Yeah. But all of these people answer. They all willingly talk. Until they don't want to talk, and then they get super angry and act weird. Well, he you also... can just let yourself off the phone. Like, listen, that's a long time ago. I don't have anything to say, and just hang up the phone. Mm-hmm. You don't have to act like a lunatic. Mm-hmm. Well, he acted. I guess the point I was trying to make was that it wasn't me. It wasn't the podcast because when I told the cops about, it, I said it's just weird, right? That's weird. And I, I played the audio for them, and they said, oh, they just didn't want you on the property. You know, they don't want the media attention. It wasn't me saying, I'm with the podcast faded out. It was Debbie saying, I'm Doreen's aunt and I wanted to talk. And that's when he lost his mind. Also, let's not forget, because it's been a while, we've had other interactions with Mr. Ferguson as well. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about when we met Jim Piscotti. <laughs> <laughs> so because uh, Jimmy Piscotti was as you said by the mulberry bushes raspberry or raspberry bushes rather <laughs> i got mulberries on the mind um you guys went down by the wall uh with jimmy and i went up to the house and i was standing in front of gavea's driveway directly across from the home and I didn't, I didn't cross over into the street but i was at least beyond the house where somebody was yelling from it. And I just wanted to see if if I yelled to you guys, would you be able to hear it? Well, that's because the police have called into question Jimmy Piscotti's um, ability to hear someone screaming from 1316. Um, Donna has said, oh, I don't think there was a house that was close enough. Guys, there's definitely a house where you can hear screaming from 1316. Well, they all heard me. And not only did Sarah and Jessica... And Jimmy Piscotti hear me. Mr. Ferguson was on the other side of the house. I don't know if he was inside or outside, but he came from the far end of the house and beelined right towards me. And I briefly, as I was turning towards you guys, I saw him coming. He looked angry. So I proceeded to walk back down the road to join you guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was my interaction with Mr. Ferguson. Also unpleasant. Yes. And then I found this out later. I had taken a drive to the old Westwoods Christian Academy um, on a, a weekday to get Doreen's yearbook because I wanted to look up certain of her classmates. Maybe I can talk to some of her teachers. And, um, you know, maybe I'm a little looky-loo myself. I haven't gone back since then because, you know, 
I don't want to get screamed at or accused of stalking or anything, which I'm not. But I took a drive down Whirlwind Hill because I wanted to see um, the area again. And Jimmy Piscotti was standing outside. I love that guy. I do too. And I love his dog. And I pulled in. He's, hey, what's going on? And he says, um, you know, it was weird uh, after you guys left the other day when Joe doing his, you know, yell test. Um, after you guys left the other day, the Fergusons came jogging by and Jimmy said to them, you know, hey, you might have seen some kids out here, which I love when people refer to us as kids. It's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> the Scooby-Doo gang. Yeah. Um, you might have seen some kids, kids, you know, over yeah. here. And it's, you know, I-, I hope they didn't bother you. You know, they're just trying to solve a cold case. And he tried, as Jimmy Piscotti does, to have an affable conversation with the Fergusons. They jogged right by him. No eye contact. No acknowledgement he had said anything, and certainly no uh, cross-conversation. They just went right on by. Jimmy Piscotti is my favorite person on Whirlwind Hill Road. <laughs> yeah. The only guy I, I feel like I could really talk I to. I would agree. Um, our next question is, any chance we can get our investigation onto local TV so police are compelled to act? I have contacted uh, WTNH News Channel 8. I've talked to WVIT, NBC Connecticut. I've talked to WFSB, Channel 3. And I've talked to W, uh, I don't know what Fox 61 Fox is. Fox 61. <laughs> w, is it? I think it's TIC. TIC. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, WTIC. And uh, I've let all of them know about this podcast. I've told them all the story. I had some people uh, ask me some follow-up questions. I asked if we could book you on some of the shows so you can go on and talk about this amazing podcast. And we've gotten zero reaction. And some of the, in some cases, these are people, and I know they're going to be listening, and so I'm kind of calling you out, but these are people I'm friendly with, having been in media for 21 years. And again, I don't know if people don't like the idea of calling out the Wallingford police. I know the record journal is particularly sensitive about that, being that that's one of the three towns that they cover, that they certainly don't want to challenge or question the actions of the police. And I get that. I think it's unfortunate. I don't think it's really uh, journalistically uh, ethical to approach things that way. But I understand because it's a revenue game and you're Mm -hmm. all trying to make money. I get that. Um, but it's, it's extremely unfortunate, but yes, we've certainly contacted, uh, the locals. My next play obviously is going to be to go to the nationals and make all the locals look stupid. So this is your chance. Again, I know some of you are listening. Uh, if you want to, if you want to book Sarah, you can definitely contact her, Mm -hmm. uh, right through the show here. Yeah. Um, you also had a follow-up conversation too, with Lauren Tacoris about the 1988, 1989, uh, treatment of this case and how it might need a little uh, refresher in light of everything we found. So I told Lauren to chorus that the record journal blew it. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, every article you guys have ever published has been about 80% inaccurate. That's right. how. Right. And uh, it's true. <laughs> you know, again, most of this, most of the articles that are written on this case are, and you've pointed this out, Sarah, they quote Sharon. Yeah. They quote Mark. Nobody quotes Donna. They call Donna the natural mother, which really bothers me because they don't even use her name. Again, though, where did that come from? Right. I would guess Mark. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, one of the early episodes of this season, I was reading a bunch of the articles, and I think it's the second article that came out about Doreen. There's, from beginning to end, there's quotes from Sharon. I don't think that one had one from Donna. And that's, if I'm not mistaken, the same article where at the end they say they're out of leads? I believe it is. That's the same yeah. article, am they I correct? They say that in I, about three articles. Yeah. yeah starting, because they say it say, in a few of them. Yeah. I remember being in that one because I thought, yes. Because you're talking to the wrong people. Also, it's like June 28th, I believe. That yes. Yeah, it came out like saying, almost uh, almost two weeks or so later yeah. was right. when the first article came out. And they were already tapped for leads. Would they say, we want to ask the community for any help they can offer in the search? No, again, and I've said this a thousand times, so it's, it bears repeating, I think. There has never been any sort of evidence at all to suggest that Doreen left 
1316 Whirlwind Hill Road at any point. Stay tuned for part two coming soon. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Produced by Joe Aguirre, Jason Panette, and Maxwell McGee of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. <laughs>